the longer you procrastinate and try and perfect all this stuff, you are missing out on applying to jobs. And that is affecting your mental health. It's affecting your bank account. It's affecting your relationships, potentially. Like people don't realize for every month or week that you delay this, you're foregoing a potential salary increase. Hey everyone, what's up? This is Mitchell and you're listening to the Shaping Design Podcast where we help you get better at design through strategy, stories, and tactics each week and hopefully you become a better designer because of it. This week, we had Sarah Duty on the podcast. She was absolutely phenomenal. You'll notice that my background, my audio is not great, so I apologize in advance, but Sarah was absolutely amazing. Her background was great and we talked a lot about portfolios, running a business, and kind of transitioning to this leadership role within the design community, teaching courses. You're gonna wanna listen to this one. It, it was a really good one, so stay tuned for that. And before you listen to that, please do us a huge favor and subscribe to us on Spotify, YouTube, wherever you listen to this podcast or watch it. Give us a five-star rating or like and like and subscribe, whatever it is. We really appreciate that. That way, we know that you like listening to this and that we can keep making it. So that's all we ask. So yeah, thank you. And let's get into it. You probably have the most award-winning background of all of our guests that we have. So thank you so much for having us. a beautiful, wonderful space. <laughs> and I hope everyone can see it when I stop talking and it goes to your, your uh, camera. It's great. It's, it's a work uh, in progress. I have some stuff in my living room that I need to install later today, actually. Yeah, no, it's really cool because you can kind of tell the atmosphere behind it. And it's it's very soft. Little do you know, it's snowing outside. It looks like I'm in a surf really? lodge, but it's snowing outside. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like that. I'd like to be in a surf lodge right now. But yeah, th thank you so much for joining us in the pod. I really appreciate it. And I know you have a lot of things going on and want to be respectful of your time. So we'll we'll dive right into it. What's the one thing that we should know about you that has helped define who you are? and what you've accomplished so far? I think in hindsight, I've always been subconsciously and maybe more recently consciously designing my career, designing my way out of crappy career situations, designing my into designing my way into like my dream career situation. And I think I was just always doing that. And in hindsight, you know, it's funny looking back, it was very intentional, but it just seemed like the logical thing to do at the time. So, yeah, I've I think like to me, you're kind of one of the first people that kind of went into the UX courses. And I remember mm -hmm. back when and this is like it's not going to make us any younger, but a while back you had this page on Facebook where you kind of had this UX courses and, and a group on Facebook. And I was in that group <laughs> and it's so cool to kind of see you now. But. You were kind of what I consider one of the pioneers to all these, everybody launching courses right now. Mm -hmm. To For me, you're kind of one of these first people to go and do that. Why, what made you go and start doing that back then before everybody was like the trend? Yeah, that's a great question. The, one of the reasons I got into online classes, it was by design. It was because I have been running my own UX research and design consultancy and I didn't like having my calendar be blocks of meetings that meant I couldn't have so much control over my time. And I thought, and I spent a good probably 18 months trying to figure out what would be the business model if I wanted to free up my time and control my income a little bit more because 
as a consultant, like, sure, you can keep raising your rates, but eventually, like, you're going to get a lot of pushback, right? And then I think you kind of go to a fork in the road and you think, I need to start an agency or I need to do something different. And that I went down the different path. So, yeah, the courses were a way to really leverage my time and go for kind of a scale of people I could teach and help. So it was a little, you know, benefit for me, but also I can't coach tons of people one-on-one. That maxes out capacity-wise. So this allowed me to teach people at scale. Yeah. How long did it take you, once you kind of got started into that, to be able to slowly transition into fully being immersed into that? And like, because I know right now you got tons of stuff going on and you're Mm -hmm. basically living off of that. How long did it for you, did it take to get there? How many students did it require you to get there? Yeah, I cannot honestly remember how many students, but just thinking (laughs) in terms of years, I probably launched my first online course probably in 2015 or 2016. I believe that was all about research. And then I launched into this class about UX portfolios. And it wasn't really until I would say that I tapered off of virtually all consulting projects. Now, I, let me rephrase that. <laughs> I no longer needed to do consulting projects income-wise to sustain me. Do I do one or two or three a year, depending on what comes my way? Yeah, but I'm super selective about it. I say no a lot because it running Career Strategy Lab is a full-time business too. So yeah. So I don't know, four or five years until it really kind of sustained me financially. And, you know, that was at the time when courses were brand new and no one really knew what happened in these courses. So it might be able to happen for, it might be able to happen more quickly for some people now. However, there is a ton of competition out there now. So I think if you're listening to this and thinking you're going to make a course on Teachable and be, you know, watching checks roll in in three months, like that's probably not realistic. (laughs) I'm glad you say that because I think a lot of people have this expectation that they're going to launch something three months, they're going to start making money off of it and live off of that. Mm -hmm. I think there's a reality where a lot of people hit a wall and it it happens very fast. And you got to build like that community, notoriety. And all those that come with it. And, you know, there's all the business things behind the scenes. There's, oh, you have a payment plan and the card failed and the person is ghosting you, even though they got hired. And now they're saying they're going to take legal action. And you're like, you signed a contract. Give me the money. And it's like all this like behind the scenes stuff that is not sexy and fun that you have to deal with. So you know, there's all kinds of stuff that come up behind the scenes. I hope that doesn't sound too negative, but it's the reality of any business, right? Like you start a business and all of a sudden you have customers and customers need customer service. So yeah, that's a big chunk of my time and my team's time for sure. I guess that's the flip side of, you know, not having the one-on-one time with somebody. You have to then still maintain that relationship with them through the customer support, through all the other touch points, not just having, you know, you time, it's it's you and the company time, like them, them and the company time. H- how do you maintain like a successful relationship then with, with your customers? First of all, from the customer service side of things, it means 
having people in my customer service inbox that can read my mind and think like me, basically. And also, you know, know when to call bluff when people might be trying to, you know, abuse different rules we have in place and all this or try and get us buy into like some story they made up about why they did nothing for six months and never told us until six months. But as you can imagine, maybe we're dealing some of this this morning or yesterday. But concerning like inside this program I run called Career Strategy Lab, like I have a team of career coaches, there's three, and they all have been through the program. We've spent tons and tons of hours kind of co-critiquing resumes and portfolios and LinkedIn profiles and kind of explaining my thought process as I make decisions or give feedback and things. And now, you know, they too can kind of read my mind, but also the the benefit of having this career coach is, is that even though we're all kind of speaking from the same playbook, let's say, they bring different kind of flavors to how they coach. So for example, I'm very matter of fact, and I just say, go to lesson XYZ and do exactly what I told you. And don't talk to me until you did it, you know? And they're more like, what's right way to put this? They're more like mindset oriented and all this stuff, which is great. It just doesn't come naturally to me. So we're really well-rounded in that regard. I think it kind of balances, it balances out quite well. That's very awesome. And what would be the biggest takeaway from that journey, from building that team? Like, what's your biggest learning moment from that? Hmm. I think the biggest learning moment concerning finding any team members, like not just the coaches, is to move slow as you hire and figure out how to test the waters. You know, it's like a relationship, basically, you know, you don't want to get married after three days of seeing someone, most likely. And you need to like figure it out slowly. So we, you know, set up some kind of one and two month kind of engagements to figure out, do they understand me? Do I understand them? Like, do our personalities mesh? You know, does our work style mesh, et cetera? And the coaches that I have now, originally, they were not hired as coaches. They were hired as like a marketing arm, kind of. And then in some, you know, conversation one day, they said, you know, we also sometimes coach inside the programs we're in. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And then it was kind of just an evolution. So I think it worked well, too, because they understood the the mind of the customer so well because they were deep in sales and marketing that that informs a lot of their approach to the coaching because they get what's going through the heads of people and all the psychology and stuff that goes into your job search because it's, you know. It's an emotional experience for sure. Well, one thing that I've noticed is that there's like, you know, we, Pascal and I have come up with our own portfolio framework that helps people create their own, their own portfolios. I'm sure you have one as well and others. And then there's like ways to structure resumes and, and how much of it is an emotional decision on, on the hiring versus like actual structure. Like, oh, they hit these three points, therefore they're a good candidate. How, how do you see that? From the hiring side, you know, I sure hope it's based on <laughs> skill and qualifications and things like that. And, you know, having done hiring myself last year, I did this experiment of working with 
a handful of companies to to hire their candidates. And it was awesome. They had people hired in like three and a half weeks. It was great. But concerning the decision, you know, I think a lot of it comes down to what you're communicating and how you're selling yourself and marketing yourself in these career assets. I don't think I would really phrase it as it's, I think you said personality decision or something like that. Yeah, like emotional. Um, yeah. Emotional. Yeah. I I don't know necessarily, but I hope that the balance is more skill than like emotional, you know, because then that gets into equal opportunity hiring and all this stuff. Mm. But if you have two, three, four candidates, you know, at the end of the interview process and you're trying to decide, I think it's kind of the 360 view and feeling that you have about someone, right? Like if it's a pie chart, elements of those pie, that pie chart are the skills, the qualification, like do they maybe have seeing experience in your industry? That could give someone an edge, right? If they're mm-hmm. applying to a teaching com- education company and they worked in teaching for 10 years, well, I probably might pay more attention to the former teacher, you know? It's a bit of a long-winded answer. Hopefully it's not bias is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think it has to it has to come from some level of structure to help predict how well they're going to perform, yeah. not just like, oh, I like this person today. Let's grab a beer. And then yeah. all of a sudden they're a terrible person. They ghost you for six months or whatever. Yeah. That's horrible. And <laughs> the other thing I would say concerning like hiring a team member for my company or Hiring an employee, like if you're a hiring manager at another company, I think, you know, speaking from my own personal experience, we all have like those moments where your radar perks up or you're like, wait a second or second guess type things. I think it's really important not to ignore those, especially if you know, you know, we all know we all know what kind of intuition voices to listen to or what might be more fear-based versus legit. And in hindsight, I can definitely pinpoint a few times with, you know, various contractors or whomever in the past where I should have kind of just called it like it was sooner and, you know, saved myself months of challenges. So yeah, don't be afraid to call that stuff <laughs> out. Get it out on the table for sure. What what were those things that were going through your head that like prevented you, that blocked you from calling it? That's a great question. So one of them was like a contractor. I won't like say the industry because it'll give yeah, it away. Yeah. But it started with a really great kind of kickoff with the founder. And then I was passed off to a large team of large, I mean, like five maybe. And there were various contact points and emails going all over the place. And I kept bringing up concerns and I assumed the founder owner was aware of all this. And I thought like, no, things were so good with this founder CEO. I respect their work so much, you know, and I just kept falling back to that. And then, so I guess making that assumption that he was in the loop was probably my first mistake. And then I ended up looping him him into some emails and then it just became a multi-month like tornado of trying to get out of it and salvage it because my team I had put so much time and energy into giving them on a silver platter like everything they needed to succeed at what I hired them to do and so I was trying to salvage it because I'm like well 
hell, I just spent all this time. Like, what can I get out of this? But yeah, it's, that's how that transpired. Kind of a little vague, but hopefully there's a nugget of wisdom there somehow. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. That's awesome. And considering that, you know, you have a portfolio course, you've been hiring and helping a lot of people and that we have our own framework, our own perspective and twist on this. A lot of people are going through the hiring process right now. I've noticed an assumption or my opinion, but I feel a lot of people are trying to copy a specific, you need X, Y, Z. And everybody, everything, everybody starts to look the exact same, sound the exact same. It, what's, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, I, it's always fun when I Google UX portfolios or UX case studies and see like my own original stuff from 2017, like mysteriously coming up as other people's, but that's a conversation <laughs> for another day. But I think in, you mean in terms of the actual portfolios and portfolios all looking the same. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah. yeah. I think that's fueled by two things. I think number one, it's fueled by a lot of people who go to boot camps and programs like that are taught the end-to-end -end UX process. Therefore, their portfolios become the entire UX process. And it's basically the double diamond or whatever it is. And it sounds like a checklist or something like that or cookie cutter, right? And we all know that that's not how UX works in the real world. Right. A real UX case study might only cover research or right. like only research and no findings because you did the research and then, I don't know, the budget got caught or something, you know? So I think that's why one of the reasons why portfolios are so cookie cutter. The other reason I think is because everyone that is teaching portfolios, because everyone's an expert on that these days, they all just copy each other. And so everyone's copying each other's frameworks yeah. and assuming it's all correct. And then people making their portfolios just assume it's correct and don't do like due diligence. And I think the at the heart of what the feedback is I receive from the career strategy lab people and what I infer from their testimonials and things. It's like, it's less about your unique framework. You know, I could call my framework whatever. It, mm -hmm. it doesn't really have a frame name, honestly. <laughs> it's less about the framework. It's less about the template. And it's more about what you put in that and your ability to write and think critically about what you did so it doesn't read like, next we made personas. Personas help us develop empathy for the user. Now we made an affinity map. An affinity map helps us visualize and group common themes into zones. Or, you know, it's, yeah. that's ex we laugh, but that's exactly what they all say. I could not agree more. Like I've reviewed, like from a hiring perspective, horrible. like hundreds of <laughs> portfolios and you read them. You could just hide the name. You yeah. don't know who's who because there's no personality. Everybody sounds the same. Everybody uses no. the exact same word and the same framework. So yeah, I, yeah. I agree with what you're saying. And I think it's it's important that everybody, the personality has to shine through in your portfolio because like you're going to work with that people at the same time. They need to be able to understand that part in there. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, those portfolios, to me, it, I always joke, it sounds like answers to a UX bootcamp exam. Like, what's the purpose of a persona? Or what is, it's like UX Jeopardy or something, you know? <laughs> and it, it's also kind of insulting and indicative to the person reading it that you didn't consider them. And yes. like 45 minutes ago, I just posted something on LinkedIn about like 
the irony of how poor so many UX people's resumes are because mm -hmm. they don't think of the UX of the resume. And it's the same thing with portfolios. So I, I guess it begs the question, like, why does this happen? And I think in creating the portfolio, people panic because they yeah. know, like it or not, you probably need it to get hired. So they freak out and they just copy rather than like think critically mm -hmm. and apply UX to this problem. Like it's so fascinating to me. I think this is why I still do this, even though some days I'm like, oh, if I have to talk about portfolios again, I think I get to like go become a ski instructor. <laughs> but it is important. And I think it's like you don't realize how much effort actually goes into a proper portfolio. Mm -hmm. And like I learned a lot when I was going from when I was applying for my design principal position at IBM. I literally spent seven months working on that portfolio because I was getting feedback. I was getting and I had to learn how to present myself from a business case perspective mm -hmm. and stop. You know, it was about me leading and everything. I learned so much out of that. But we're not like boot camps don't teach that. Boot camps just teach about like the foundations, the, like the ABC. You're yeah. covered. But then it's like, you got to go above and beyond that aspect of it. Yeah, it's, it's okay for your first portfolio if you're out of school. But if you've been in the field for a while, that's not how you present your portfolio. Mm -hmm. Like, what are the business outcomes? What are the outputs? What are the, like, there's, it goes so far beyond that. And I'm glad there's some people that teach these types of things like you do and like other people do. But hopefully they teach it in a way that it's not the cookie cutter aspect of it because everybody mm -hmm. starts to look like a zebra. Like it's not <laughs> yeah. how everything is. Yeah. And I mean, maybe you can answer this question, but I worry that if you can't write succinctly in your resume and in your portfolio and present a project at an interview, then how do I know if I'm hiring you for a research position that you could make like a findings deck of your research or that you could talk about research findings, right? And I don't think people realize that the resume portfolio, how you present yourself in interviews, et cetera, it's like a foreshadowing of what you're going to do yeah. and how you'll perform as an employee. And so people wonder, why am I not getting interviews? Why am I not getting offers? I always say like, go back to your resume, go back to your LinkedIn, Go back to your portfolio. Something is broken there and mm. stop redesigning it and changing the fonts and like colors. It's the content, you know, it's like nine times out of 10. It's the content and you can put all the beautiful design on a resume and portfolio you want. But if the substance isn't there, it's going to make you seem like a not very substantial candidate. Yeah, it's great advice. And so that we can change topic, what would be like your, like the final takeaway from a portfolio from like you've, I know you've done a lot of them and teach a lot. Mm -hmm. What would be a key takeaway for the listeners out there? If I can only give one, <laughs> I would say write it out first, like in a Google doc, because here's why. If you start making it, if you start designing it, you're going to get lost and enamored with the design. And the design doesn't matter, like we said, if that content is not substantial enough. So write it out and then know that, you know, even if it turns into a 3,000 word Google Doc, obviously that's not going to be a 3,000 word keynote presentation. But force yourself to write because in writing comes critical thinking. And then that allows you to get below the surface of not just saying I made personas or I did research, but 
Why did you do that? How did you do that? What did you learn? What happened? How did you apply that research moving forward? And I think people just don't think to that level of detail when they are trying to do that in a design software and when their brain is kind of in design mode. At least that's my experience. Even even when I'm preparing a conference talk or something, I used to try and make it all in Keynote first. And then I just remember I was sitting in a coffee shop near Wall Street in New York City. And I thought, this is so ridiculous. Why don't I just pretend I'm writing an article and then I'll turn it into a presentation after I write the article. And after that, it's so easy. So yeah. Great point. Great perspective. That's actually, it's, it's funny because like, I'll, I'll give you a quick story. I was trying to leave a company and I had no portfolio. And so I thought, why don't I just start drawing it in sketch because that's what we're using at the time. Figma wasn't like a big thing. And then it became a big thing. But then I spent seven months trying to figure out what my portfolio should look like. Mm -hmm. I never filled out any of the content. <laughs> and then I had a friend tell me, why don't you just write it in Notion or some other tool, whatever yeah. it is. And then I use that outline as the, the structure. Yeah. I'm like, oh, okay. And then two weeks later, I had a portfolio. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm literally writing about this right now in this book I'm working on. And the whole book is not about portfolios. It's only a chapter. Mm -hmm. And... This is, I mean, this is a preview of what it's all about, you know, because your story is just exactly, exactly proof of this. Yep. <laughs> Mike drop. I hate basically. to say it. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. I mean, like, it's true. And, and I miss out on so many opportunities. People are like, hey, what's your portfolio? I want, I want to hire you. I want, I want yeah. to see you look like on, on, on you know, screen. Um, I can't show you anything because the things that I have available are NDA and the things that I, I want to show you are not prepared in a nice way. And I missed out on a lot of opportunities. Luckily, I had a great opportunity at the, at the end of it when I had the yeah. two weeks portfolio done. But it was a long, stressful and painful thing. Not, but it's also not just painful for me. It's painful for the people around me knowing mm -hmm. how much I'm suffering in that role or that job, whatever. And they know that I'm trying to get out. But yeah. I don't have the, the resource to actually share out and say, hey, take me. <laughs> get yeah. rid of, like, take me out of here. But Well, I think that I think that's such an important point to reiterate that the longer you procrastinate and try and perfect all this stuff, you are missing out on applying to jobs. And that is affecting your mental health. It's affecting your bank account. It's affecting your relationships, potentially. Like people don't realize for every month or week that you delay this, you're foregoing a potential salary increase. And like we could sit here and probably quantify for you, we don't have to, but you could probably sit down and think, okay. At month zero, here's what I was making. I spent seven months and then I got hired in month seven for this. If I had finished my portfolio in six weeks, how much money would I have like, you know, been earning because right. I got hired faster, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. People yeah. don't think like yeah. that though. They just think, what font should I use? Well, it's almost like there's a tantalizing aspect to that where it's like very, it's a very attractive thing to feel like you chose a unique font that mm -hmm. no one else has chosen, you stand out. And therefore that's the strategy that people take. But yeah. that's not like the best strategy overall. That turns out to actually be a pretty bad strategy for <laughs> a lot of people. Yeah, and sometimes and, it's going back to like Helvetica. That's yeah. gonna work. It's been around for like a long time. It's gonna yeah. be around for a long time. You yeah. can stick to Helvetica and then you're gonna be fine. <laughs> and like also when you think of the users of your portfolio or the stakeholders, it's not just you're applying for a design position, it's not just like the person who might be a peer who understands design as much as you. It's like some junior 
person in the HR department who's doing a first pass of the 200 candidates who's probably never worked in UX before and couldn't identify Helvetica from, I don't know, Future. Ariel or Future Proxima Nova or whatever, you know? So it's like the, as there's many roles in UX, but those designer people, I think it's important to remember like the audience of your portfolio, it's not all designers, you know? So oh, yeah. this is not and like I, I've, an award ceremony. <laughs> I've hammered on that so many times. It's yeah. like, you got to design for your end user, just like you do a product. A portfolio yeah. has end users as well. And it may have up to three different end users. So you can adjust your portfolio depending on who you present to or mm -hmm. which level you're at. But I think that's so, so, so important. Yeah. Yeah. It's all, so, it all comes back to the UX of your resume, UX of your portfolio, UX of your interviews, of your job search, of everything. Same thing. And yep. a bit of riffing off on like the portfolio and everything else. And we're seeing what's happening in the industry. You know, there's a lot of, you know, layoffs here and there. Do you think the industry is growing or slowing or potentially even just adjusting? I think adjusting would be the way I would phrase it. I think that people have always or people have often associated UX as a job that happens at tech companies, right? Like Microsoft, Amazon, Netflix, cool companies like that. People forget that there are thousands, tens of thousands of companies that are not in the tech industry that have websites, have apps, need service design, et cetera, hospitals, banks, little local companies in your neighborhood and city, your local municipality probably needs a UX designer. So it's important to remember that if you are job searching, like, get out of the tech industry and look at companies in other industries because they need people. They might actually pay more and give you better work-life balance than a gigantic tech company. But I think it's partially a mindset and ego thing where people believe this allure that if mm -hmm. you have Google or Netflix or whomever on your resume, it's like a golden ticket for the rest of your career. And it's kind of like, no one cares. Like, Maybe it might give you a slight edge, like because of brand recognition on your resume. But I've also seen a lot of horrible resumes and portfolios from people at all oh, of these companies, right? So thousand percent. You could, you know, you could have that on your resume and get put over to the no pile very quickly. So it, it's only as good as the story you tell about whatever you did there. Do you think like this could an assumption? But do you think like the younger generation coming up, it's cool to work at Instagram. It's cool. Like it's there's the cool vibe to it. And they want to work at the big six or like these big mm -hmm. companies because it's cool. Let's say like the people that have been in the field for a while understand that design is design. Like it doesn't matter what company you work for, you're solving a problem. And that's mm -hmm. just it's the same problem you end up over. Do you think that's a factor that plays into it? Like the wow or cool factor? I think it definitely plays into it. And I think if we were to continue making, you know, assumptions, which I think aren't very far-fetched, the next assumption I would make is that I think a lot of this goes back to the UX industry kind of having like a branding problem and maybe not self-inflicted, but opposed, imposed upon mm -hmm. by a lot of these boot camps, et cetera, who tout and claim that do X, Y, Z, and you can get hired at Google and make $100,000 in 
24 weeks or 12 weeks or something like that, right? And so a lot of these testimonials are always using, you know, the top X tech companies and the testimonials for my program. Sure, we do have people from those companies. We also have people get hired at companies that you've never heard of, probably would never heard of unless you read our testimonials and they're little local energy companies or beauty companies or education companies that people increase their salary by like tens of thousands of dollars. So I think that it's kind of self-inflicted though, not by us personally, but like it's a byproduct of the boot camps is what I'm trying to say, (laughs) I think. It's a great point of view. And I think a lot lot of the, I keep saying younger generation because like, we, I didn't start off with a 100K job when yeah. I first started, right? Like no. My generation. Far from that. So Mitchell's no. generation and younger, like they all start off with this big paying job and having something cool. We had to like, if I go back for myself, I had to work in like print agency and touch yeah. up photos. That's how I, I like, I, I was touching I up photos. On, that's what I mean. Like doing for business semiconductors. cards. <laughs> exactly. It was it was it was boring, but we we had to work and we learned yeah. that way. And and now now I'm like I've worked with big companies, I've worked with other companies, etc. Mm-hmm. But I find like that alluring factor of it. And then they end up working like 14, 16 hour days because they mm-hmm. they work at Google and they're on the Google bus for two hours back and yeah. forth. So they have to work. And it they basically their life is and I think mm-hmm. you get to a point in life where you gotta separate work and life. Mm-hmm. And I think what, like you said, sometimes working in a smaller company, same salary, yeah. but your lifestyle, like that's worth a lot of money in my opinion as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that point you made about like people's whole lives being about work or being about design and things like that. Like, it's great that you're passionate about design and whatever you're passionate about work-wise, but I think there's such a hyper focus or I get the feeling that there's such a hyper focus on work being your whole life. And, you know, you're a UX designer and you're trying to become an influencer and you've got a podcast and you're doing this and you're a mentor on ADP and you do this, that, the other. Like, (laughs) no wonder so many people are burnt out and have imposter syndrome and have mental health challenges because they don't like go for a walk in nature or sign up for a 5K to to kind of challenge themselves and develop some resilience. And instead, they're living in this like gigantic, dare I say, sometimes toxic pool of comparison and views and likes and all this stuff. And it's like, I, I've been meaning to write an article on the importance of developing resilience in your career. And part of it is like, step away and like get a life outside of work basically you know oh a hundred percent and a lot of people like if we just switch gears and go to like twitter and when a lot of people are chasing likes and Mm -hmm. they're all Mm -hmm. about and sometimes i'm like i'm on twitter i'm trying to just share my knowledge i'm not trying to like sell necessarily anything i'm just trying to share all my experience with a lot of people Mm -hmm. yet somebody designs a button which nobody's gonna ever use in life in any software they get (laughs) 10,000 likes on it <laughs> and they get teach me how to do that but yeah you're never going to use that in life I don't yeah. understand that aspect of chasing a shiny button yeah mm-hmm. yeah I think it's just this it's this like it's a vanity metric it's false sense of security and self-worth or something and I think 
you know, if we had three more hours, we would get into a gigantic discussion on like the impact of social media on Ugh, our no. jobs, on our lives, on on yes. everything. And this is it's a prime example, like, you know, the same the same impact that mental health has on people and their bodies or their appearance and all that stuff, all those negative things, it applies to our work lives as well. And I think, you know, we do it in the name of like work, but I don't think we realize like this might be part of the root problem of why so many people, you know, we just live in this design bubble, but I'm sure it happens in, you know, other industries. I know it happens in other industries <laughs> as well, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, I I agree. And with that being said, you know, we talked about the younger generation and everything. Like, I'm not going to take Mitchell into this, but let's say you and I have been in, in the field. <laughs> you for, can take me into it. <laughs> you're still too young. But let's say we've been in the field for a, a bit longer than Mitchell has. Yeah. How do you, as a designer, as a course creator, how do you stay relevant to all this and, and, and stay up to par with like the younger generation and help transmit all that? I think... My answer is, I don't even try. Fantastic. Like, I, I still use Sketch. Could I use Figma? Sure. Can someone else use it better? Yeah. Do I care? No. Do I, like, try and stay up on ChatGPT and all this stuff? Yes. Am I cranking out content about ChatGPT, like, left and right? No. I think I really focus on the timeless skills that will help you, hopefully, mm -hmm. 10, 15, 20 years from now. And I think, I think based on the feedback I receive from people after, you know, they read an article or listen to a podcast or take a course or something like very often the feedback is, and I'm paraphrasing, but like, thank you for your kind of down to earth, timeless, sensible principles, et cetera. So, um, I think maybe it's working in my favor, but we'll see. <laughs> but I like that, right? I think that the prin design principle are going to be transferable regardless of which software comes along. Mm -hmm. Like there's, there was yeah. this, the, I know people get tied up so much to the software they're designing now. I've gone through like 10 software since I started Museum my career. anyone? <laughs> like in, I don't know, Quark Express when I was doing Yeah. Print. Like I don't, I don't care. I don't care which software I'm using. It's, it's going to change. But people yeah. get so tied to it, they forget about the rest of the design life and the principles and hierarchy and things like that. Yeah. I think just like building relationships with developers and project managers and your boss and knowing how to sell yourself. on Those are things that yeah. nobody talks about. Everybody talks about that shiny button they just made and how cool is that animation? Yeah. Yeah. And like, it's so funny to go back to this chapter I'm writing for the book right now, but. Like I said, we can only have one chapter about portfolios, so it's very challenging. And as much as I would like to talk about, you know, 20 design principles, I'm probably only going to pick three. And so what I'm doing after this podcast recording is thinking to myself, of all of the design principles I could teach people, what are the three or four? And one of them mm -hmm. is definitely hierarchy, because every single resume, like, not every single, I'm exaggerating, but 97% of them probably, no hierarchy. Basically. And this is this is even from people who say they're a designer. I'm like, there is no hierarchy, you know? So I've seen that in like, even from staff designers who have like yeah. these big titles and you look at their design and I don't know where to look because my eye is not being guided on that page. Mm -hmm. Yet that's so important. It's like the foundation of it. 
yeah. or they use three primary buttons on your page. Those are yeah. just like foundational elements that we should learn in school. Yeah. Or, I know we learn in school, but it's not transferable all the time, unfortunately. Yeah. And I, I think it just go back to chasing trends and software and people, you know, not not investing time to learn like the theory, you know, and like if I see one more laws of UX post on Instagram, I mean, there was a plug I could pull somewhere. I would, but I mean, for LinkedIn, <laughs> but like, it's just, it's, it's wild. And I, I think I can't, I don't know if I've ever been in a design session or in some meeting anywhere where I've said, well, according to the law of something we should do, you know, I might, I might talk about hierarchy, but I'm not, I'm not referencing laws. I mean, and I think a lot of times people spend more time memorizing which law is what than they actually do understanding the principle of the law. Like, I'm sure people are listening, thinking like the law, the hierarchy thing is law, whoever. I, I honestly don't know what the hierarchy law is or principle, but, but I know but what you know how to do it, is. though. Yeah, that's the thing, right? You, I don't understand. I know the laws <laughs> exist. I know how to do it. I don't, yeah. I don't I haven't memorized it. No, it's like of all the times I could spend my of all the things I could spend my time on, I'm not going to I'm not going to go memorize laws. Sometimes I think it'd be fun to try and take a UX <laughs> exam and see how poorly I fail at it. But <laughs> at least I know I can do it. <laughs> I'm and even going to go. I know. And I agree. I'm I also don't always name my layers, but I've still been able to no. go through life and design. <laughs> I don't name my layers. I don't group them sometimes. It's I, I feel I, I feel so attacked right now. I'm, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But but actually, to go back to a point you made, I think a reason why a lot of people follow these trends, they get stuck in this mentality where their identity is tied to these trends. Yes. Right. They tie themselves to a tool like you know, one thing that Pascal and I are actually working on, working on a bunch of resources for Framer for help, helping people, you know, build websites, but also not just designers. We want to eventually poured it over towards people who don't know design and just mm -hmm. need help building a website quickly for a very niche industry, like for doctors, lawyers, whatever it is. And, you know, there's like such a wonderful community around this tool, for example, that you do feel a sense of I would say belonging in, in a digital world mm -hmm. where you're not really socializing people in person. One thing I'm trying to do is actually I think when I get back from my trip is to create like an actual in-person group where people can like meet up and chat, not about the tool, but like that have interest in the tool. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a loss of of belonging. And that's probably why a lot of people gravitate towards these trends. They think that they can be a part of something that they themselves cannot do alone or that they have fearful, they're fearful of doing themselves alone. Yeah. And they think that that's going to take them further. But in a lot of cases, it really doesn't. And it get, it creates that, that unfortunate like rut that they keep walking in until they go deeper and deeper into the ground and there's, they're not happier. They're actually sadder. So it's hard to like maintain that. And I, and I will say, you know, as the generation that is, is unfortunately stuck in it, it's, it's hard because we, we're given a bar so high and we're like, all right, now we have to exceed this. Oh my gosh. Like we have so much more stuff that we had to retain in school and that we didn't even get to a resume, like building yeah. area. Like there's no time for that. There's no time to even like some, some schools, they, they primarily focus on you getting an internship. And I was very fortunate that mine was like, Hey, you need to have a like one or two before you graduate, but some schools, they don't have time 
for even that because mm-hmm. there's so much work. You have to sometimes you have to work a job, two jobs just to maintain the classes. Yeah. And then you don't have time for an internship because it's like free, you know, at that age. Yeah. So it's like there's so much pressure on top of it. I think that the people are, are in a state of desperation to kind yep. of seek that out. And if they only were able to step back and take a breath and like, look at the stuff that you're teaching, look at the stuff that Pascal and I are teaching, they could realize that there's, there is a way out of that, that trend. There's a way out to, mm-hmm. to succeed at something and be good at one thing or be good at many things, but have principles, principles behind them that can take them a lot further for many, many, many years, not just for tomorrow or the next year. Yeah, it, I think... I would summarize your last part and just say like, sometimes you need to slow down to speed up. And it's so cliche, but it's, it's so true. Like in this, when you're trying to solve a problem, I run. If you want to get faster at running a marathon, it's not about running faster every single run. It's about like one or two hard workouts and running the rest of your runs at like a really annoyingly slow pace, you know, but that's, that's how you get yourself out of these 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 ruts, as you said, and you end up building that, you know, resilience and laying the foundation to to jump to the next level. But it's I don't like going slow. I really don't like going slow. But <laughs> when I do follow the running plan and I do what it says to do, I see results, you know. So, yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to kind of go into the last two questions, Esco? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. As we oh, cool. are close to closing off here, how do you shape the world through design? Hmm. You know, I have this idea in my head that sometime, someday I will write a book kind of like design for non-designers, and it wouldn't actually be called that. But I think if we could apply some like design principles, especially research principles, especially context we could teach everyone in the world that I think, you know, the world would be a very different place. I think we'd act a little slower, think a little sooner and uh, like see things differently. Because I think like one of the magical things, not magical, but interesting, beautiful, whatever word you want to use about designers is like, we see things a little differently because we see the details and the context. And I would love to have some sunglasses I could just throw on everyone to see that also. It is. And, and or soon, on the opposite. Trademark. <laughs> I'll flip on the opposite. I sometimes just wish I wouldn't see like that extra white space for nothing. And like, oh, I'm too. missing that. <laughs> You're judging every single piece of design that you see all the time. Sometimes it's annoying. Yes, I I think that multiple times a week. Like if I could just <laughs> unlearn all of this, it'd be really awesome. Every like just uh, every time I open up Netflix and I'm looking at oh. stuff is not aligned. I'm like, why is that icon bigger than that one? All of a sudden, it, like there, there's yeah. I just, that was me I two nights ago. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And then shifting on that final question, how does design then shape you as an individual? I think it design shapes me because it allows me to be super creative and apply design to so many other parts of my life. Like right now, for example, I mean, you saw my background and my Zoom. There's like design on that. There's design of how I'm going to transfer data from my 93-year-old grandpa's laptop, old one to new one. Like, I don't know. It just, it kind of makes everything a little bit more fun for me because I feel like I have this, you know, creative approach to 
boring things in life, basically. I don't know. Great answer. Yeah. It was awesome. Thank you so much for this. This was amazing. I think this is, this is going to be a, a real hit of an episode. This is awesome. And I yeah. think a lot of people are going to learn a lot from it too, because it, it's nice to see that you took, like I was going to say, for me, how design shapes you is you took design and you created your own career within the design yeah. field. So that's how I see that it shaped you. And that's like the best way you can approach it. You don't have to work for a big six company. Mm -hmm. You can still learn and do as many things as you can from a small mom pop shop. It's mm -hmm. just about your perspective and things on all this. So that's how, from my outside looking in, yeah. I see how design has shaped you. Yeah, that's great to hear. And it's it's true. Like, it's funny in hindsight, looking at little like product roadmaps that I made for my own career back in 2003 or four or something like that, seven. It's creepy how close they are to what has actually happened. <laughs> and I don't think that is by accident. I think it's by design and hard work and a few little pieces of luck along the way, you know? Awesome. Any final thoughts for listeners? Get Anything you want to plug? Get, get a hobby. But I mean, you, <laughs> yeah. you, you plug your courses. I mean, this is yeah. the opportunity yeah. as well. No. So I do run this career coaching program called careerstrategylab.com. And it is a kind of six month program, super small, super intimate. We cover everything from career roadmap all the way through resume, LinkedIn, job search, portfolio, everything. So it's like one-stop shop for everything. And then I'm experimenting with some shorter courses right now. I have a live two-week resume course, which is coming up May 1st, it starts. The URL for that one, I don't know it off the top of my head, but- I'll put it in the show notes. We'll, yeah, we'll, on, it, we'll yeah, put it. Yeah, it's on this platform called Maven, M-A-V-E-N.com that I'm testing. Yeah, we love Maven. It's trending right now. You guys are yeah, on yeah, it too, yeah. I think, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So I'm testing that with them. And then uh, you can find me on all the social places. You'll have all the links and all that. Yeah. We'll, yep. we'll make sure to put everything in, in the, yeah. the notes and everything is going to be able to be linked out to you. Cool. Great. Awesome. All right. Well, thank, thank you, you so, so much. much for all this. This was awesome, guys. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. We'll have yeah. to do around too soon. I know. Well, when this book, I the book yeah. should come out like, I don't know, this time kind of next year. But in the fall, we're going to start ramping up podcast bookings once we have a better idea of like what month the book might come out, you know? Yeah, we'd love to have you back on yeah. talking about the book. No, it'll be fun. I'm excited. I, I'm not excited to write about it this afternoon, <laughs> but I have to. I'm like, I need to stop overthinking it and just choose two principles, not 20 to focus on, which is harder than it sounds. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Sounds All right. Good. Well, All right. have Thank a great you. rest of your day. Thank you again. Thanks. Appreciate okay, it. Okay. Bye. Thank you.